welcome to this WPA NextGen podcast. I'm Charlotte Ashton, London Office Agent at Colliers and WPA NextGen Committee member. And I'm Matthew Barrett, Asset Manager at CBRE Global Investors and fellow WPA NextGen Committee member. The Westminster Property Association NextGen platform is the go-to network for the next generation of real estate leaders keen to broaden their industry knowledge and expand their business networks. Supported by Gardner and Theobald. Thank you very much. WPA NextGen hosts are a forum of educational, engaging and innovative content to benefit property professionals early on in their careers. We aim to deconstruct the barriers to entering the property industry and our programme is designed to be a connector of people and a source of information. Today we are going to be exploring flexible working and remote collaboration in the workplace. To help us dive into this topic and share their experiences and opinions, we are joined by a fantastic panel of experts. So we have Kate Davies, Infinity Squared Wellbeing Consultant, an independent consultant having recently spent six years working with CBRE in a real estate workplace and well-being role. Kate brings a wealth of global and UK experience on the world of work, including ways of working, getting the best use out of space and incorporating well-being into everyday life, whether it be in the office, at home or working remotely. Kate has worked with many different sectors and is passionate about providing the things that people want and need to help them work well. Next, we have Matt Holt, an architect at Gensler. Matt is a qualified architect with 10 plus years experience, eight of which he's spent at Gensler working almost exclusively on repositioning schemes. Matt is also part of Gensler's firm-wide landlord and developer repositioning practice area, which seeks to share project knowledge and client relationships from other parts of the world, identifying emerging trends and best practice examples. Next, we have Sven Moller, a Director of Workplace Advisory at Colliers. Sven is an experienced workplace advisory leader, developing and implementing local, regional and global workplace strategies to accelerate the success of corporate, institutional and government organisations across EMEA, APAC and the Americas. Prior to his current role, Sven led workplace advisory for Colliers International in Australia. Sven has background in workplace design, architecture and real estate. And at 22, while still studying, Sven designed his first office HQ for one of Australia's leading fashion companies. This proved to be the beginnings of a strong passion for workplace and how people work. And finally, we have Matt O'Halloran of Smart Spaces, a director and head of Occupier Services. Matt leads the commercial team and consults global real estate firms and enterprise occupiers' brands on their workplace and workplace strategy to ensure the right technologies are deployed to facilitate a frictionless arrival experience, the ability to pre-book and access space on demand, enhance ESG credentials, and drive operational efficiency. The Smart Spaces platform is live in over 20 million square feet to include setting the standard on assets such as 22 Bishopsgate. Smart Spaces are also the provider to the Hickman Whitechapel, which is the recipient of the world's first Smart Score Platinum rating. So an excellent team to talk through some very interesting subjects. I'll hand over to Matt to open up our topic for this afternoon. Thanks, Charlotte. The topic today is flexible working and remote collaboration. First of all, what do we mean by flexible working? So flexible working is a flexible work arrangement that empowers an employee to choose what time they begin to work, where they work and when they stop to work. The idea is to help manage the work-life balance, reduce employee stress, increase productivity and overall job satisfaction. And what do you mean by remote collaboration? 
while this refers to the ability to engage as a team from anywhere in the world. So gone are the days of needing to work in the same physical space as your co-workers. With remote collaboration, you can truly work anywhere. Great. So we'll jump straight in. And Sven, you're first up for the first question, if you could kindly kick us off. So flexible working and remote collaboration, they're not new concepts. But how has the application and adoption of these principles changed, particularly in the last 18 months? So if you could give us some insight on your experience before, where we were and where we've come to. Perfect. Uh, Thanks, Charlotte. So I think to start off, really, for the first time in history, knowledge workers have been uh, forced into working from home and asked to adapt quite quickly. And I think for some organisations who had established flexible work practices in place, it was, I guess, in essence, a, a, an evolution. These are countries or organisations that are at the top end of the workplace maturity curve. But for many organisations, it caught them by surprise and has required a, a somewhat intense or rigorous focus so they could continue to function. But I think that the greatest surprise, if you will, is that for many leaders, has been the realisation that organisations can work remotely, they can be productive and they can stay connected. So it really has started, I guess, an essential conversation at the boardroom level. And I think this is a unique situation at the boardroom level on what is the purpose of the office moving forward. So as we've seen over time, many organisations and many cultures have essentially adopted activity-based working or desk sharing or a level of flexibility. And many organisations haven't. But what it has done, it has really accelerated a five to 10 or 15 year transformation of many organisations into one. So now what we're seeing is really kind of three types of project emerging. And that's some organisations are holding, learning and collecting data. So not doing anything yet. Some are piloting and testing. So at a smaller scale, and then some are fully transforming before employees come back. They're transforming from a a level of of size and functionality. I think they're the two key critical aspects, but also the work from home aspects so managing a distributed team, et cetera. The leadership aspect is a really critical aspect moving forward policy as well. And I think it's going to be a big challenge for those uh, organizations or leaders that want to revert fully back because it is a war for talent and flexibility is now well and truly a forefront of the agenda of employees and organizations that need to keep them. Excellent. Thank you. Ben, to stick with you here, is there any data out there to suggest that this change in the increase in remote collaboration, that there has been an increase in productivity? Yeah, so I think productivity is a unusual or a cha- not an unusual, but a challenging metric because it is self-reported. But there is a lot of data out there. And I think we've done multiple surveys with over 50,000 respondents looking at productivity, particularly individual and team productivity. I think it's, it is an important conversation. And what we have found is people have reported higher levels of individual productivity working from home. And we've done that at the, looked at that at the start of the pandemic, but also during the pandemic. And we keep continuing to take pulse checks on that. But again, this is really, really subject to a person's role. Their living circumstance plays a massive impact on and multiple other factors. But we certainly see that it is increased and that the majority of employees say individual work is done better at home, where it's more easier to control distractions. And uniquely in our research, that they can be more creative at home moving forward. But that conversation is not just about individuals. And I think it's really important to ask the amount of work that's being done. And there's clearly more work hours during the pandemic for those that have also shown greater productivity increases. We also, as a last thing, looked at team productivity. And I think that team productivity is really important. So asking managers, what are their view on that? And they've identified 
almost half have identified a productivity increase while their team is working from home. But of course, productivity and efficiency at what cost? And I think this is where health and well-being plays a key role. So having that balance, and we're all already seeing fatigue from Zoom and other factors when it is not a balanced approach or a hybrid approach, whereby, you know, the office still plays a role, as well as the benefits of working from home. That's really interesting, Sven. Thank you. And so I think, Kate, that brings us nicely on to you in terms of your wellbeing consultancy advice. What do organisations need to do from a wellbeing perspective? For example, how can businesses prevent employees' feelings of loneliness and fatigue? And what has the impact of COVID been in terms of feelings of anxiety and long COVID issues? That's a really good question. And I think Sven has already touched on this in terms of the increased spotlight that's been shone on wellbeing. So from a physical and a mental health perspective. We are seeing a rise in the number of people who are saying that they feel lonely and isolated, particularly across the UK, where there's been these changing restrictions on what people can do, when they can do them, who they can see, when they can see them. I think from an employer perspective, so from an occupier perspective, there is a responsibility to really listen, to understand what people want in the future and not just to hear, to make sure that they're asking the right questions, to make sure that they're providing that space for people to talk openly about how they feel and about what they need. I think we will see a shift, as Sven has already touched on, in terms of people moving back to working in an office environment, but it may be for very different reasons. So there will certainly be a change in terms of what people go into an office environment to do. Certainly, I have advised many clients recently around taking the one-size-fits-all approach because we know that it doesn't. So those organisations where perhaps they made a knee-jerk reaction of, we don't need any offices, we can completely move away from real estate, we will be totally virtual, do need to spend that time and think about how to get that collaboration, how to make sure that people feel connected, and how to keep that culture going in a remote way, rather than when people are seeing each other face to face. Thanks, Kate. Could you put a bit of colour on what kind of examples can businesses do to help their employees feel less anxious or uh, you know, less lonely? What kind of policies are you seeing being brought into companies to kind of bolt onto their flexible working policies? It's really interesting because the majority of organisations are steering away from policy and making something a mandate. But as Sven's touched on beautifully already, it's about surveys it's about asking the questions it's about the continual engagement I think at the start of the pandemic a number of organizations did a brilliant job at team socials and zooms and walking step challenges and competitions and you know really focused on bringing people together and then as the year progressed so you know perhaps April May June onwards they started to be diluted. And actually that virtual coffee then became, oh, I haven't really got time for it because I've got mountain demands. So I think it's really important as we start to look at vaccination programme is being rolled out. Organisations are looking now at what do we do going forward? We almost need to reset that balance and say, right, okay, what does our new way of working look like? So for those people that are going to be physically in an office space, how do we keep them connected? How do we make sure they're okay? How do we have regular check-ins? For those that are perhaps introducing more homeworking in a structured way, so rather than it being mandated, what do we do with them? So it really is about making sure that organisations understand their own culture, their own vision, 
Where are they now? Where do they want to be? And recognising that for many, the last 12 to 18 months, although we've talked about people working at home, people have really been surviving at home, trying to work. We need to look at this like holistically as what does that future of work look like? Thank you, Kate. Matt H, how are you advising clients on flexible office design? I think the best advice really from from the experience we've had over the last 18 months is to ensure that the design for each tenant is right for their culture, their business and and their talent. Too often organisations have adopted the latest work trends or or working practices when in fact they've maybe not been an appropriate fit for their culture and they haven't quite gelled the way that they kind of uh, thought they might. The imagined benefits, if you like, sort of haven't transpired. We're advising a lot of our clients right now to be in a sort of constant state of kind of beta, if you like, a sort of a state of testing. The idea that perhaps the office should not be a sort of fixed space, but should always be fluid and moving and dynamic and open sort of testing new ideas. We're still in that sort of place at the moment where the pendulum is still swinging on whether or not hybrid working is is here to stay in, in the way that we've seen it over the last 18 months, if we're likely to go back to something more towards what we had previously, albeit that there will be some form of hybrid working as there always has been. There's no right or wrong answer on how to design for it now. It's just that idea of constant evolution. And then, as I said, always being a beta mode of, or testing mode, if you like, before, try before you buy the, uh, the permanent solution. In terms of spaces, plug and play infrastructure, important pods, Zoom rooms, open desking versus quiet focus spaces are all very relevant. But I think it's about getting the balance of those spaces right for each of our clients, really. Our clients often sort of want to jump towards open desking or focus space without really knowing how that impacts their particular culture. Benchmarking can help to give us kind of ballpark to start with. But now more than ever, we really need to listen to our clients and listen to their staff about what's going to work best for them. And I think that comes back to you know what we've spoken about in terms of a lot of kind of employers are sort of getting much more savvy with internal surveys, trying to establish you know what their staff are actually asking for. And then we are kind of asking our clients to pass their survey results over to us or, or indeed conducting our own surveys internally for them to try and sort of really uh, flesh out what they really need. I guess the key theme post-pandemic is that flexibility is key and, and to be truly flexible requires more time to be spent on the infrastructure, the services, the technology at the outset, really. And then you can benefit from that in time. Perfect. Thinking about how I've had these conversations, I work in real estate, talking to my non-real estate friends and peers. A lot of them are saying, oh, well, we're just going to change our office or we might move or we might downsize. And I think Often people don't understand the way the kind of cycles change with your office requirements. Some people may have just started a 10-year commitment. They may have just be halfway through a 15-year commitment. They may only have one year left. What are you seeing kind of the biggest design challenges in terms of, I guess, the spend, the time, the focus, and not being able to just knee-jerk, as Sven says, or just move office or change? Because people are held to these lease events, aren't they? So, So what's the biggest design challenge for flexible space? It's a challenge in convincing the client that it's not a challenge, if you like. It's actually an opportunity to test new ideas, as indeed we've done moving into our new office. Fair enough, it was pre-COVID, but we had the chance to test new ideas. Having maybe fewer people in the office does give you the opportunity to maybe remove some of the desking, 
try out new methods of working, new types of collaborative spaces, maybe to really just try and get that blend that kind of works and, you know, test out these ideas. Don't commit to one way of doing it. Maybe don't expend too much money off the bat in doing something wholesale. Try and implement it in stages so that you can test, see if it works and then sort of have a bit, bit of a smoother kind of rollout, I guess. Totally agree with Matt H there. And I think that one of the key things or two or three key things is the metrics how you looked at workplace in the past is less relevant. We're almost at back to square one with data, with the way that we we look at it. So uh, the work point, what is the role of the work point moving forward? Is it a desk? Can it be something else? If you're rebalancing the size or, or the zoning in your workplaces, as Matt talked about, and I think the functionality question's really critical. Why do we come into the workplace in the future and how much do we want to support individual work versus collaborative work versus socialization? And we're seeing big shifts albeit that it all change over time, then I think we, yeah, we need to, to understand how that's going to look and how are the most suitable or what are the most suitable metrics around that. Is a, is a square metre or a square foot rate for, per work point or per headcount actually relevant? Is there more to, to Kate's, to Kate's uh, area of expertise? Is there more uh, you know, satisfaction metrics or, or overall utilisation metrics? And I think that's, that's a critical thing moving forward. And I think the last thing I'd say is leadership. I think the conversations, at least that we're having, are completely different to 18 months ago because the challenge or the pain points, which might be around sharing or flexibility or working from home, are largely alleviated at a, at a senior level. Where we see the biggest challenge is not really at individual con- contributor level or at a leadership level, a senior leadership level. It's middle management. And that's the strongest focus of change because they're, they're caught in between strategy And they're caught in between operations, if you will, and managing them and taking them on that journey, I think is one of the most critical factors, along with the technology question that you touched upon before about hybrid meetings and inclusivity as well. That's really interesting. And moving to technology, Matt, how can technology enable employees to work more flexibly, ensuring that these remote workers can collaborate effectively within their network? How are smart spaces providing solutions to their clients? Yeah, it's a great question and great time to come in on it. I think uh, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, the start of the pandemic, what technology evidence to all business was that you could leave the office at breakneck speed. You know, you could pretty much fire up home PC, laptop, phone, whatever you had to connect to the internet and use cloud-based services to communicate with colleagues to continue to interact with your business systems. Some were a bit more advanced with cloud hosting, uh, others were on-prem and had to have a bit of transition, but pretty much across the board, after the first sort of terrifying 48 hours of what on earth is going on, people were up and running from their kitchen tables, so to speak. You know, on that question of productivity, it was very clear early on that people were rolling up their sleeves and not taking the opportunity necessarily, particularly in the knowledge sector, to dwell. They were very much cracking on and business as usual from as much as it could be under those, those constraints. What we're seeing with smart spaces and the type of work that we do is the ability to use technology to bring you back to the office equally as quickly. The questions that have been uh, raised uh, so far and what we've touched on around, you know, everything we're all super interested in (laughs) at a selfish personal level, you know, my own mental health, my own well-being, you know, my own work-life balance, you know, all of these questions rest with every individual person and whether you're in senior leadership, middle management or on the front line, uh, that doesn't leave any of us. We're all got a vested interest in this, being the biggest social experiment, probably certainly in my lifetime. And um, I think overall, it's been a, a, a great result given the horrific sort of backdrop of circumstances. 
Uh, now it's about getting people back in a way that balances things out. And I think that reference, Matt H, to the pendulum settling, we don't know when, when or where it will settle and to what degree hybrid will be self-determined or enforced. But we do know that businesses are now and have been for some time planning. Sven's reference to businesses at the top of the maturity curve on this, uh, I have a great illustration for you. So at 22 Bishopsgate, London's new tallest building, there's a Lloyd's underwriter called Beasley. And Beasley Group had been or had embraced activity-based workplace for several years prior to the pandemic. So we're already well ahead with regards to accepting working from anywhere, not just working from home. It's quite divisive when you say working from home or working from the office. People kind of fall down on one side or the other. But actually, the sentiment is it's working from anywhere. You can sit under a tree if you want, if you're going to be more productive, focusing on writing your piece of work, or you can come to the office, you know, to meet clients and, and everything else in between. So they were, they were already ahead on that. Now, they were at 60, where were they? Uh, sorry, Plantation South. They had 60,000 square feet. Now, they did some analysis and they got some real data and they found out that 750 odd workstations, they never had more than 400 people in. Now, you can imagine if you're the FD of that firm, that's terrifying when you get these numbers back. Two things. The biggest catalyst for anybody moving business, moving premises, has to be those lease events that Charlotte's referenced and what that forces on them from a time frame perspective. Can they find the right place in the time frame that they need it? So that's still going to be one of the biggest drivers. Now, for Beasley, going to 22 Bishopsgate was perfect because it's opposite the Lloyds building. And as the brokers come out, they can go straight into 22, come upstairs and get those deals underwritten. So for them, from a location, location, location perspective, this is absolutely right for them. But the kicker is they knew that they didn't need as much square footage. So they took 50,000 square feet They've only fitted out to Matt H's references around workplace trends and how people can just follow that blindly thinking it's the panacea. They actually use data to determine their fit out prior to going to 22. So they have only put in 400 workstations. But what they have done is created an awful lot of additional flexible space. So whether it's breakout areas, whether it's bleachers, whether it's um, focus rooms, they have three libraries, they have an observatory. They do have the pool table in the corner, you know, they have for the social events and so forth and the screens, the presentation environments, lots of focus rooms, which are non-bookable. They simply have status flags when they're occupied. It's red, when they're not, it's green. And an awful lot of meeting rooms at both the client-facing level 12 and obviously on their own floors on, on 13. That transition from their perspective throughout the pandemic was an easy step because they're already working hybrid. It doesn't really worry them who's in and when. And within their own workspace, they were able to create it in a way that meant they weren't oversubscribed for workstations and therefore not really utilizing any of the space for the other activities that they might want to engage in. Now, that's incredible. And I believe the real estate saving costs were circa £800,000. So you've just moved to the world's smartest skyscraper and saved a load of money on your real estate. Now, that's probably not something that people would have imagined would be the case. So they are way ahead of the curve. Now, lots of other businesses we work with, of course, are just on the start of that journey. And the other pressure points that they're feeling, trying to come up the knowledge curve on how they can use IoT sensors for capacity management, how they can encourage their workforce back to the office and ensuring that they have a safe environment. And that's, that's you know, from both a, a, a health point of view. So the building is, is healthier and it's more likely to have less transmissible illnesses. 
So we talk about a contactless workplace environment now, ability to access a building uh, using your smartphone, not having to con- come into contact with shared surfaces, uh, and also the quality of the air that's feeding into those spaces. So these are, these are some of the things that aid in that regard. And when I think about workplace productivity, I think about it from a slightly different perspective. I think about it from illness. So whether it's physical or or mentally related, somebody's ability to perform and be productive will be inhibited. So if we can minimize that, minimize the stress points, then I think that's good for everybody because individuals are, if they are success driven, they're obviously going to be quite committed, but they might work through burnout and that's not good. And equally, there might be people who feel isolated because they just can't get the uh, amplification that they need for their viewpoints in the workplace. So it's it, we want to foster that community and that encouragement within the workspaces and different types of activity areas may free that individual up to have a greater voice and that opportunity. So there's an awful lot happening right now, pretty much again at breakneck speed to come back because lots of people have targeted, whether it's the 21st or now the weeks ahead since the goalposts were moved again or September or realistically into 2022, but the planning is underway and it is the technology, it's the tools that can help facilitate it. So it's that part of my intro, it's the ability to book and access traditional workspace on demand. So FM, HR, and everyone else has got vested interest in how that space operates and the well-being of staff can understand the movement of their people in and out of that workspace and manage that as effectively as possible to both identify isolation, those who aren't coming in necessarily, uh, and those who who are, um, and trying to get the balance right. Sure. Matt, thank you. And and understanding that sort of you kindly, and we've got a tick there, you've mentioned WFA, which is one of these buzzwords working from anywhere. And there's also this physical is a term that we've heard. So the blend of physical and virtual. So Matt, coming to you here, what are Gensler doing in terms of designing in flexibility for team meetings, where you have that physical and virtual nature for others dialing in remotely? And how can we use design to ensure that those meetings are inclusive? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a real tricky one, isn't it, for meetings that we're all starting to have where sort of half half the team are there in person, half are there virtually. I guess this can be addressed kind of both physically and sort of behaviorally. Physically, by designing rooms that have the right sort of technology, the right sort of setups, and behaviorally by establishing kind of rules of engagement, which is you know what we're what we're starting to to see at the moment. So it can help, for example, if a meeting is split between in-person and virtual. Often in the meetings I've been part of, it's often best to have one of the virtual um, attendees to be the chair of the meeting. It gives them the ability to steer things. Obviously, when you're there in person, it can be quite easy to sort of get carried away chatting, and then the people that are all there virtually can end up just being sort of bystanders really to the um, to the in-room conversation. So I think the sort of behavioral way of working is just as important as the physical space and the technological setup. Perhaps there's something here that means we need to rethink meetings altogether, in a sense. Are all meetings remote? Do all people in mixed mode meetings take their laptop so that everyone has the same experience? And it's not a case of people in the meeting room or on a big screen and you know everyone at home is on a laptop. So trialing out those things. Or some organizations we're seeing are also looking at having meetings only happening on the days when people are working remotely, for instance, so that everyone has that kind of the same experience, I guess. But I, I think that's, again, just going back to what I was talking about earlier on in terms of testing, that's still something that I guess a lot of a lot of our clients, including ourselves, are all testing at the moment and kind of finding what works best for them. And um, we're starting to see that sort of filter through now to sort of uh, establish best practices and best ways of doing things. Brilliant. Sven, yes, please jump in. I think this is the biggest 
question of all in, in, in many ways, and I'm an architect by background, I wish it was space, but I think it is really technology. Uh, how do you bridge that gap between of inequity? And I think having an inclusive environment in a mixed presence situation will be, will be the biggest challenge moving forward, along with managing space and the size of space and functionality and, and so on. I think it needs to go beyond changing even just the layout in the sense of a space layout, you know, whether it goes circular or semicircular versus a typical meeting room table and chairs, which has been around for a long time and hasn't really been interrogated so much. So do we do a camera, more microphones, one or two screens, or can we actually push it? And there's some really interesting opportunities out there, like uh, Google's looking at something called the campfire, where it's a semicircular setting where you've got basically a camera in the middle and you've got screens next to each other at head height, a very literal way to deal with it. On the flip side, I was literally on a call with a client just before, and they said, but that's not flexible enough. And that's if that doesn't work or we want to change it, how do we do it? Maybe it's better just to, to connect to each one's individual devices. So again, it really depends on the goals. The last thing I'd say is augmented reality, virtual reality, and mixed reality are going to play a big role. And I think that's the next paradigm shift. You're looking at holograms, avatars, et cetera, being able to almost have a non-programmed space, but you can go into a corner, put on put on the goggles, so to speak, and connect back in to a, a different environment, I think is really, really, really key and going to be a really exciting space to explore. Brilliant. And, and Kate, please jump in. It's fascinating the speed at which I think technology will advance and can advance. But what I would say is it's so important we don't lose the human connection piece There are so many people that are incredibly isolated and lonely and actually work for them not only gives them a sense of purpose, but is almost like their extended family, particularly people who may live alone. So I think organisations, employers and individuals, we've all got a responsibility to be really clear on what we need. Do we need that human interaction that is face-to-face? Are we having conversations that actually having that conversation virtually or remotely, particularly if it's one-to-one, if it's pastoral care, or if it's mental health related, can can be incredibly difficult in a screen setting. And and often enabling somebody to open up can be done very cleverly and, and much more sensitively if you're sat alongside that person. So I think absolutely looking at you know, when we look at meetings, is there a clear agenda? Is there a purpose? Are there actions? Who needs to be there? How long does the meeting need to be? You know, I think we've all probably experienced that Zoom fatigue where we've had back-to-back-to-back meetings where you you struggle to have time to actually do the, the job and the things that you need to do. So these are activities that most organisations and clients that I've been working with are starting to look at now as, as we go as we transition to returning to offices um, and I won't say go back to work which you know has been banded about in the media but people have worked incredibly hard um, probably harder than ever for the last 18 months but what is that new way of working and, and how do we keep that connection with each other? Brilliant Kate well thank you you've almost covered I think the next question which are are there any negatives are there any risks but I guess you know it's, it's obvious and we, it's important that we do identify these and we address them but just on the po- more positive side are there benefits for employees and their employers of flexible working? Yeah I mean there are there are tons of, of benefits whether that be 
autonomy, a better work-life balance, flexibility, people having the ability to walk their dog whenever they choose, pick their children up, have caring responsibilities. But there are there are risks and there are some negatives that, that need to be understood. Um, particularly if a person is unwell, how do you know that person's unwell if they choose to switch their camera off maybe? Perhaps they are not attending meetings or they're later attending meetings. They may become um, socially isolated. So it really is about creating that safe space environment to have those conversations. And more importantly, I think when certainly as we come back to this point of it being managers that you know, leadership, they've got the vision, they know where they want to go to, you've got people on the ground that are like, this is what we've wanted, we've wanted an opportunity to work anywhere for a long time, but managers need to manage differently, so they need to be aware of people's strengths, areas of development, and what support they need, so when they ask a question of, how are you, they need to leave that almost pregnant pause for a person to answer and you know start to introduce perhaps scalability of how do you feel on a scale of one to five if five's brilliant on top of the world and one's nah, not great talk to me almost in in numbers so that I can understand is this week better than last week or not and the same with workload it's a very interesting point about what you said about being unwell well oh well you can just dial in because you're at home and I think it's that being available all of the time. So you raise that really interesting point that that being available all the time does have a negative. And I think that's from me, from a personal perspective, as well as my colleagues, you know, that is the biggest risk I think that we that we have. And Matt, smart space, I see you putting your hand up. Do you want to um, add anything? Yeah, I, I did. Thank you. It's just just uh, just a personal passion of mine around uh, empathy and leadership and trying to recognise um you know the warning signs uh, with colleagues and even clients. You know, um, come across that a few times in my in my years. Um, and you can just sort of you know to the side, just say, "How are you?" I mean, it's it's a wonderful sentiment, and if we all did it more, I think you know that's that's the right thing to do. I, I, I guess the people are more remote. It's very difficult to maintain empathy over a screen because you can look for those warning signs that Kate's uh, rightly illustrated, but you know, that's very difficult. And so how, how can that be done? And of course, again, where technology can aid uh, in in keeping people connected is through anonymized surveys. It's through trying to give a platform for people to express how they feel, because we all know you can write down your to-do list, but you don't feel any better. If you write down how you feel about your to-do list, you're going to feel a hell of a lot better very quickly, because it's the expression of the emotional state of mind that gives the stress relief. The work's not going to go away. And that list, you know, you clear of one thing off, another thing's going to go to the bottom of it. We all know pressures of being productive at work. You know, that's good because it means the business is there. But at the same time, on an individual level, it's stressful to, to manage, um, particularly if you don't feel supported, particularly if you feel you're you're taking on more, more of a burden than you could possibly manage. And as people are remote and not present, it's very easy for that middle management to offload more and more work. So, and expect results very, very quickly, perhaps faster than they might have done if they accepted you were coming in uh, on a commute and you were present in the office, they could see you're busy on calls, they could see you're busy, you know, trying to get work out. There'd be a bit more understanding that you can't get to that next piece, but that's difficult to manage remotely. In technology, interestingly, quite early on in the conversation, we talked about the types of roles and illustrates it is based on the type of role that you do. So we have a lot of software developers and we can measure their productivity very, very easily. It's highly visible. 
in the, their output. Our more client-facing teams, they clearly need to be around the buildings. They need to be in front of our customers and they need to be collaborating and working with them as part of that partnership. So, so you know, it does become roles-based, I think, what what's going to work for any one individual within their career. That's really interesting, Matt. Staying with smart spaces, what kind of technology should we be kind of looking out for with our futuristic hat on? So then mentioned you know, augmented reality, some of the exciting terms, you know, where, where might we be in kind of five or 10 years in terms of remote working? Could we be on a beach working in the Bahamas? You know, you mentioned sitting under a tree, but some more tropical sounds more appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, and me too. <laughs> I think that's the, uh, that's the plan, right? Yeah, it, it's very interesting because Charlotte referenced the, the buzzwords and phrases. There's another one at the moment, which is the art of the possible. And when you're at a new frontier of big change and how people are going to tend to find that lots of things are being thrown at the wall, we'll see what sticks. At Smart Spaces, we focus on tangible technologies. We focus on what you can achieve today with customization configuration, but literally out of the box. So what could I, if I decide I want to deploy particular types of occupancy sensors or air quality sensors, uh, that level of monitoring in the workplace, I want capacity management, I want resource booking. I want contactless access and controls of my environment. You need a smart building operating system. So that is now the advent of smart buildings for the last sort of five years is gaining momentum. It's fair to say, if we forward project, there's nobody going to develop a new asset that's going to willfully disadvantage themselves. So as more and more buildings become smart enabled, it's going to obviously have the rest fall into line to want to achieve the same. So that's down to the marketing, the letability. It's down to perhaps value. If you have got a sovereign wealth funds looking to invest in capital markets and choose London, are they going to invest in a smart building five, 10 years from now? That's got the data. That's got the, uh, you know, the, uh, the ESG credentials that backs up their strategy around that. Or are you going to go to a traditional building with gray space and it hasn't got what they need? So it, it's lots of stakeholders have become very, very interested in smart buildings. And what that really means to break it down, because it can be quite mystifying for people, there are lots of individual products or base build systems that you will find people will put smart in front of. But one individual system doing its primary function doesn't make it smart. What smart is, is taking information and data and change of value from one system and having a platform decide what change of value should happen in another system. And a very easy illustration is you walk into a meeting room, book to meeting room, and it doesn't trigger because nobody's attended. We can then have a number of escalated messages in the platform. We can say, okay, release that room back into the inventory. Other people can now book it. If nobody's booked that space for a period of time, do we tell the fan coil to power down and we drive energy savings that way? You get real space utilization benefits and you get energy gain benefits as well. So a whole host of others as well. But you can kind of see that it's the interoperability across multiple systems a smart building platform can give you. And then that opens it all up to those conversations about your workplace strategy. What do you want to get as an ROI? What's number one on your agenda? Is it workplace productivity and well-being? Is it ESG? Is it health and safety? Is it the list can go on? What what are you sustainability? What are you looking for as your measurable outcome that's primarily driving you coming to this space? Some will say I want everything, and others will say, well, no, it is it is for this this reason. And so then you can configure and set up the building accordingly. So I think that's where we are with it. That's really interesting. Thanks, Matt. We've heard on the call today that the pandemic has really been a catalyst for the implementation and the adoption of flexible working and remote collaboration. But I'd be interested to hear from Matt Gensler. 
how are you advising clients to make sure their buildings are kind of safe spaces for their employees to go back to, to kind of encourage them to come back to the office? You know, what kind of design changes through technology or security? What, what kind of things are you are you guys looking into? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's obviously for a lot of our kind of workplace consultancy guys in working hand in glove with many of our sort of tenant clients to try and understand how or try and come up with systems to get tenants back to the office. Oh, yeah, I guess if I'm being honest, I, I can't really think of my, my own personal kind of experience of what I've done or thinking of what we've done to try and sort of make that sort of safe. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of work that's been done in terms of branding, signage. We have an internal branding department who have been busy trying to come up with ways of designing graphically safer spaces, but ideas that don't fall into that trap of just being yellow-black tape on the floor and sort of arrows that say, go this way, go that way. So I guess there, there's a lot that we've done in terms of just the simple stuff to try and make filter design into those kind of graphical signage. Matt, are you are you finding that you're fundamentally changing designs for example putting in second stairs so you can have the up down systems uh, changes maybe to the reception area the one bit that us as office agents get to have a bit of a play and touch and feel because that's the bit normally controlled as a common part are there any fundamental changes or do you think people are still taking a temperature check seeing if we pass this and hopefully never have to go back into that environment well, I, I think there's two things. I guess there's the kind of the knee-jerk reaction in terms of, which I guess is kind of where I was going with the, the branding and the short-term implementation of improving security and, and safety in buildings. And then there's the bigger wholesale design changes, which does include stairs, improved circulation in the building that doesn't just rely on the firefighting staircases. You are talking accommodation stairs that give you that vertical connectivity and take the pressure off the lifts. But I think from from what I've seen in terms of the repositioning, that was happening anyway. There's a number of schemes that we were sort of halfway through completing before COVID happened, where we were looking at external terraces, we were looking at accommodation stairs just as part of the, the well-being argument before COVID happened. And I think there's just, you know, COVID has just put a bit more emphasis on that. People that maybe wouldn't have had a staircase, an accommodation staircase in the budget are now looking seriously at implementing design changes like that that can improve overall well-being off, off the back of this. And Kate, with companies trying to attract talent, can you see companies allowing people to work remotely from another country as part of their flexible working policy? I think it's something that we will just continue to see evolve over the coming months. I mean, certainly if a person is UK based, there are tax implications if they then spend six months in their sun um, on a beach somewhere exotic. So it does need to be worked through. I think the majority of organisations, certainly in the short term, are not making contractual changes for people so if people are working in different locations it's done under the banner of COVID now whether that will change with time and people will be truly empowered to work anywhere at any time across the world uh, I I couldn't honestly say right now I don't know and Sven maybe may have seen a little bit more from a a workplace strategy perspective Um, I think people will always need that human connection. So whether that be a human connection um, in an office location or whether it be collaborating virtually. Great. And then I guess last question to Sven, because I think it's important and it's one that Matt, as a landlord, wants his buildings let. 
myself as an agent, we want everybody coming back to London so we can let these offices on our landlord's behalf. But are you seeing businesses, their space requirements reducing in size, given the increased number of people working from home? Or are some tenants upsizing because they actually want more space per head? Really, really good question. And one that I am going to be a politician on and say yes and no to that. So Yes, there are organisations strategising to, to reduce space now. And I think it really depends on goals, uh, the goals that you set. And, and to your point, Matthew, around uh, ROI and, and, and the measurable benefits, and that's what we always set out as the first task in each project. What are we trying to achieve as a business and how the workplace can impact on that? So, yes, I think that there is certainly that. And there is also certainly organisations that are, are seeing this as an opportunity to to improve the, the workplace and density is a key key player in that. And, and to, to Matt H's view, uh, views on, on uh, pandemic design as well, I think it's an extension of it. So there is the opportunity there. But again, I think it really depends on the, the drivers and the industry. But I think there's also another conversation to this and it's, it's at what point are companies uh, doing what? And I think many companies aren't going out there and fully transforming yet. So we don't quite know yet how they're going to respond. Of course, they're saying around the amount of days of work a week that that they'll work and you can make inferences from that. But again, we're we're not fully certain. For those that are testing and trialing and and that are holding and learning, of course, they're going to look at those densities as a key thing. The, The last thing or the second last thing I'd say is I think it depends on the occupancy approach or the capacity management approach that Matthew touched upon as well. Is the decision to work at home whenever you want at an individual level? Is it at a team level or is it an organizational level? And that all impacts on occupancy, equal spread versus small fluctuations versus substantial fluctuations. And again, those behavioral aspects or those those leadership decisions or employee decisions impact on the space requirement moving forward. In the same way as as the utilization approach, as I like to call it, is do you book a, a desk or use a desk for a day and move around space and occupy two spaces? Are we really going to push it and have a very collaborative social office uh, and the role of the desk change in which you declare your intention to come in and don't occupy multiple spaces at a time? So again, that really, really impacts on the space requirement. And booking apps, as, as Matthew mentioned before, we see the occupancy analytics and booking apps converging. So being able to have that real-time data around what are the spaces and settings being used uh, and how they're being booked and the, and the behaviours and the rules or principles around that are going to become really, really critical. And so that test and trial process that, that we do with clients, we call it the hybrid workplace analytics, is really critical to, to, to work out what works and, and to make sure they're getting ROI and achieving their, their select goals they state. Thanks, Ben. And I think to wrap up this podcast, we've got a a final question for everyone. What does the future of flexible working look like? And, you know, let's let's talk about a five year prediction. Who wants to go first? Let's go with Kate. So I think for me, the future way of working is all about choice and empowerment. So people having the choice of where they work, when they work, how they work, rather than being told they have to be at home two days a week or they have to be in the office on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's about people being given all of the tools, the technology and the spaces to be able to to choose when they work. Thanks, Kate. Um, Moving on to Sven. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think the key word is balance. 
and I'd put in, in, in brackets re in front of it, if, if I will. I think it's the balance between employee needs and I, I think it's really critical from a, from a perspective of empowerment and choice. But I think also managing the, the needs of the team and also the organisation that is balanced across the physical environment, technology, behaviours, brand and so on. So I think rebalance is the key. Um, Matt Holt at Gensler. Um, I, I, I guess the truthful answer to the kind of what is the five-year prediction is that nobody, you know, nobody knows really. But I think if if it's done right, if it's human-centric, I think is something that we're really sort of focused on at the moment. If it's purposeful, if it's experiential, I guess going back to what I started with, you know, if it's always in a, in a state of kind of fluid flux, if it's in beta mode and it has a life beyond just being a workplace, I think that's where we see it going. Just ultimate flexibility is, is really going to win the day. And Matt, smart spaces, last but not least. Perhaps um, one of the uh, eldest people on, on this call uh, ran a block a long time and so my view is I totally love and appreciate all of the sentiment around more flexibility and choice. But UK PLC has been around a long, long time. This could be a flash in the pan. Uh, it could be business as usual, faster than we probably envisage. Some of the markers for that will be productivity. It will be income to businesses. Um, and, it, and, and the pressure points will be market-driven as well. Because if remote working does actually open up the job market and we start exporting jobs, I think that politically could have serious ramifications. And so lots of businesses that set the benchmark for everyone else uh, will probably have a lot of reverse lobbying from government in that regard. Um, so I don't know how that's all going to balance out in the end. Or perhaps my wish more than anything else is that we do end up getting the balance right on hybrid. Um, because I do believe the technology is there. I do believe the workspace is there to be enjoyed as well. Um, I think it's everything in and around the space as well. Um, architects often talk about the spaces between the spaces. and you know, it's London's got, you know, and every city and every major town has got some wonderful features to enjoy. Uh, there are retail shops, there's leisure, there's F&B that rely on us being at work and out and about and enjoying those experiences. And um, we are social creatures. So I think ultimately, whether you're trying to get the balance right because you are leaf- living in a leafy suburb, married with kids, or you just have come to city out of, you know, a city out of college and you're trying to meet people, build a network. The balance will be different for each individual. So if it is personally driven, then that's probably a good thing. But I dare say, yeah, people, if they want to be successful, will probably want to be more present uh, in the workplace and in and around building networks and those who can do work because it can be measured productivity-wise remotely will probably be fine carrying on the way they are. So, yeah, that would be my wish uh, for the future. Thank you, Matt. And thank you very much for everyone on our panel today we've had some really fantastic insights and we hope everyone listening to this podcast also found it equally uh, insightful and thank you again to Gavin Theobald for sponsoring the WPA Next Gen and we hope to see everyone at a future event soon thank you